from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. The Royal Aeronautical Society hosts more than 300 events each year at its headquarters in London's Mayfair and around its global network of branches. Many events are free of charge for members and non-members alike, and every event attracts speakers and guests from every corner of the global aeronautical and space community. Visit our events calendar to learn more. www.aerosociety.com slash events We are proud to present the following lecture from the 2012 Named Lecture Series. The Named Lecture Series honors distinguished aeronautical pioneers and offers a platform to high-profile speakers representing all sectors of the aeronautical and space community. All content published by the Royal Aeronautical Society is subject to our website terms of use. Visit aerosociety.com for more information. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Trevor Verge. I'm the um, chairman of the Aerodynamics Specialist Group of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and it is my uh, pleasure to be the Master of Ceremonies for this uh, Lanchester Lecture. Uh, as most of you hopefully know, um, this is our, really our, our top lecture for the, for the year, the Lanchester Lecture, obviously named after a very famous <coughs> British engineer. Uh, if you've been here during the conference, well done for saying, that's really good. And if you've joined us, welcome. Uh, this bit's free, the earlier bit you have to pay for. Um, so tonight, it's my uh, pleasure to be able to introduce a first-rate speaker who is not from the conventional aerospace background that has uh, become the tradition over the years for Lanchester. But of course, Lanchester did quite a bit of work in automotive as well, so it's very appropriate. Um, so our speaker is Willem Toit. Uh, Willem was born in Amsterdam and grew up in Australia. Uh, we won't hold that against you. Uh, <laughs> uh, he moved to the UK in, uh, in the early 80s. And I have to confess that it must have been not long after he arrived in the UK, as an undergraduate, he pitched up and gave a lecture on... Were you working at Williams to start with? Benetton. Oh, Benetton. Benetton. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he's got a bit of experience because that was quite a long time ago. Um, so, in '82, Willem was working on sports cars, and he moved in '85 into Formula One with Benetton. Uh, he's worked at many of the other Formula One teams, and is now at South of Formula One. Um, and as you've all come to listen to him, not me, I'll hand over to Willem. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm pleased to see so many smiling faces, so many familiar faces, unfortunately, because it means I've got to be very careful what I say. Um, however, good plan. <laughs> Is that okay? Shall we go a bit darker? We'll try that. We'll try that. More romantic. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about. Um, Formula One and how we do our research, what tools we use, 
and hopefully a few stories about human beings because in the end uh, human beings make a really big difference and Lanchester was certainly hum a human being who made a bit of a difference and I think if he'd been around today uh, he'd have probably been my boss um, but uh, a very clever cove so he did do quite a bit on, uh, on cars as well as planes um, inventing or improving things that are for us commonplace today, things that we, we take for granted. One of the first to use a proper accelerator pedal instead of just having a, an accelerator setting, um, a lot safer that way. Uh, detachable wheels, which we really appreciate in Formula One now we do try and do fast pit stops, things like this. Um, but I'm going to get straight on to uh, what, what I'm here to talk about, which is really uh, what makes a difference to the performance of a racing car and my experiences in Formula One. And your starting point does make a difference, but let's put roughly in order what I think are the most important factors, if you can think of them as engineering factors. So I'm not going to put a percentage on a driver, but let's say if you can improve the grip of a Formula One car, starting from a today's Formula One car, if you can improve the grip around about 10% of your tyres, you'll make about 3.2% 3, 3 improvement in lap time. If you can reduce the mass of a car by about 10% from where it starts today, you'll get about 1.9% improvement in lap time. And I'm talking uh, sort of a global average over uh, the full circus of Formula One circuits. These factors vary from circuit to circuit. Um, if you change the power of the engine by 10%, you'll make about 1.5%. And uh, electronics, pneumatics, hydraulics, they, they, uh, electronics in particular, electronics is in everything. In Formula One, they banned all sorts of driver aids, but, but we use electronics to just, even just measuring things. If you can't measure things, how can you figure out what's going on? So electronics is so, so all-pervading, it just, it just goes over everything, then you can't ignore it. Um, but the direct benefit of electronics, let's call our kinetic energy recovery system electronics, it makes about a half a percent of lap time, roughly. But it does give, give you certain other advantages. And then aerodynamics, if you change aerodynamics by 10%, you make just 1% of lap time. So it's not, it's not on the surface of it the most, the most important thing. But the engineering factors are not the whole story. Then on the driver, as engineers we don't choose the driver, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the driver. But more and more in Formula 1, we are scientific about everything. And if I go back to one of the drivers I spent quite a bit of time working with, both at Benetton and then later at Ferrari, Michael Schumacher, he was one of the first to be so, so physically fit that he'd get out of the car and it looked like at the end of a race, he'd get out of the car and it looked like he didn't even, hadn't even broken a sweat. And if I look back at drivers that were around at the same sort of time or just before, um, you look at Nigel Mantle. Nigel Mantle would step out of the car and he'd practically collapse on the podium. Now, he's a bit of an actor. You know, it's, a, it's such a hard race and I think he overdid the acting a little bit. But what Michael Schumacher was maybe the first to either fully understand or his people fully understood, if you are physically really, really fit so that driving, a form, driving your Formula One car, doing your day job, is literally a piece of cake, it is literally no sweat, then you 
are likely to be able to do it easier. And the easiest way, I think, to explain the, the, the science behind it is, imagine sitting here at, at, at these lovely, comfortable desks and doing an intelligence test. And just sitting and just quietly, uh, just doing complex maths or some sort of physics that you find difficult. Then, stand on a running machine, run at 170 beats a minute at heart rate and see how you get on with the same difficulty, grade of difficulty of test. Clearly, you're going to be a lot slower. And the Formula One teams between them have all realised this, that the drivers today are much fitter for a genius driver, for a natural driver to come in and just be more as dominant as some drivers are, is harder today than it was in the past because the teams are learning and they're getting their drivers fit. And it's not just fitness, it's what you do with your mind and your body while you're driving your car. So, uh, if I take... Uh, what you do with your eyes, for example. It's not so difficult with the technology that's available to the teams to put a camera on the driver's helmet to work out where is the helmet pointing. It's also not so difficult to put a camera on the helmet facing the driver's eyes and work out where is the driver's pupil focusing. You put the two together and you can work out what the driver is looking at, looking for. You get your experienced driver, the one who doesn't make very many mistakes, let's say uh, a Jensen Button, let's say uh, an Alonso. They're on the edge, they're driving really hard, but they don't seem to have as many accidents as, say, some of the younger drivers have. Then you look at what some of the younger guys are doing and you use the experienced guy's um, movement of his eyes to help train the younger one what you should do. And what you, should do, what you should do in every single type of sport is look further ahead. You look as far ahead as you possibly can. You don't focus on the apex of the corner until you hit the apex of the corner. You focus on the apex of the corner as you aim for it. As soon as you aim for it, you're spotting your exit. You don't wait till you make your apex and see if your car is sideways or understeering to decide what to do next. So, with driver simulators now, my team doesn't have a driver simulator. You might put two and two together and think a little bit about what my drivers are doing. They're, they're fantastic young boys, but we aren't in a position to be able to train them as well as some teams can train their drivers. But driver simulators will help a driver to be scientific about his part of the job. Now, from the driver, I'll move on to what, for, for me, is, in an engineering sense, the most important factor, and that is the tyres. There are many things that you need to make a tyre work, one of the first things is temperature. You need to be able to switch the tyre on. Now, I do a little bit of speed hill climbing from time to time, and we use wet weather compound tyres, so you don't really need to worry too much about temperature, but you'll still notice if it's icy, they don't work so well. Um, the Formula One tyres need a little bit more temperature, and I've just put up a generic graph, diff just different ways a tyre can, can work, but you need to get a tyre up to temperature. The other thing that's important as an aerodynamicist to understand about the way a tyre works is the friction coefficient of a tyre, so how much force you can exert in relation to how much load you're putting through it, the friction coefficient tends, all things being equal in wet and dry conditions, ice is the opposite trend, but that's by the by, um, in, in wet and dry conditions before you get to aquaplane, then the tyre friction coefficient will get lower as you increase the load. Now it's important to know that as an aerodynamicist because if I double the, down, the weight of the car effectively by putting downforce on, I'm not going to make as big a gain as it would appear that I might make because the friction coefficient of the tyres gets worse. 
And then the other thing that's important to, to know, these are pictures of me and hill climb cars, these two, um, is that the friction coefficient of the tyre changes with slip angle. And a road car probably reaches its optimum slip angle at about 10 degrees or 10% of slip, something of that order. Um, so in both these pictures, I'm going a little more sideways than is ideal for optimum grip. And then you slowly lose out. But you need, the, the, the plot shows that you need to get your friction, you need to get your slip angle up to a certain extent before you reach that optimum grip. And it seems to work for even bicycles. I do downhill mountain bike racing now because I'm in Switzerland. And the, the motor racing sort of, um, they don't have motor racing. They have hill climbs, but, but downhill mountain bike racing is cheaper and just as dangerous and therefore just as much fun. Um, and the same is true there. To reach the optimum grip, you need the tyres to be sliding just a little bit. And if the car's not on the ground, and this is a genuine photo, it's not a Photoshop job, this is genuine. He had an accident just after this. <laughs> because, I mean, he's got no grip. So the other thing that sort of is related to tyres very much is if the... If the suspension kinematics, the shock absorbers, if, if they're not set up well, if, if the tyres are not set at the right angle, they're not at the right pressures, they're not working at their optimum, you're not going to get the best out of the grip. And unfortunately for people working in other areas of race car performance in Formula One, suspension kinematics and all these other things take a, take a back seat to aerodynamics because aerodynamics turns out to be incredibly powerful. But if you get it wrong, you can still have a race car that on paper should be blindingly fast, but actually in practice isn't because it uh, doesn't ride curbs, for example. This, these curbs are particularly brutal for a Formula 1 car, and the driver just decided in quality that he'd just go a little bit harder. That was that. That was the end of quality. Then the next thing is weight. I'm afraid I'm very simple with my slides here. Um, but weight is really, it's very simple, but it's very, very important. Um, if you reduce the weight of your car significantly, then it's simply, as soon as you have enough power, enough traction to put your, the power you've got on the ground, then you're going to accelerate harder. But there's another important factor. If we have a light car, and we also generate downforce, so let's imagine a Formula 1 car weighing of the order of 600 kilograms, and you add 600 kilograms of, of downforce, then you'll be able to go around the corner reasonably quickly. Just then imagine doubling the weight of the car. You've got double the mass to accelerate, but you've got only half a car's mass now, instead of a full car's mass, to help you give extra grip around the corners. So the weight, a light car with downforce goes around corners much faster. A light car with even two cars without downforce, a light car or a car with wider tyres, will go slightly faster because your friction coefficient is helping you. And a lower centre of gravity, a lower centre of gravity in straight line acceleration if you are rear-wheel drive will hurt you a little bit because you're not getting weight transfer to your rear wheels as much as you would if you had a higher centre of gravity. Um, if you have a front-wheel drive car, of course, the opposite is true. I, the, the, one of the two hill climb pictures was a, a little Peugeot 205 that I used to hill climb some time ago, and I had 70% weight on the driven wheels. It was fun in braking because the rear wheels would be off the ground, but it was good for traction. Um, but a lower centre of gravity, when you're going around corners, just imagine even a low-speed corner, 
If you've got a high centre of gravity, the car will roll, your inside wheel has almost no weight, then it's quite difficult to get good traction when your inside wheel is, is tending to be just in the air. So a lower centre of gravity, even though in a, in a dead straight line it doesn't help you with traction, it does help you if you've got corners. And all circuits have corners. So the, the circuits in Formula 1 are designed to just slow the cars down, not have strokes 20 miles long and things And then engines. They're 2.4 litres. We are limited to 18,000 revs. We are limited to a minimum weight of 75 kilos. We maximum eight cylinders. They've got to be round. The, the, the limits are quite restrictive. But there's still quite a difference between the power curves of different engines. Peak power is quite similar, but power curves are different. And they are still amazing things. They still sound, even at only 18,000 revs, they still sound utterly amazing. And then we're getting closer to air. I just I move very quickly close to air. That's my natural habitat. Um, but engines and air are sort of also very closely related, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about that. The density of air with temperature and pressure behaves in a very comfortable, linear, easy to understand way. And aerodynamic forces will change just with pure air density, effectively. If um, then the next factor that's sort of related is humidity, where if you add humidity, particularly at higher temperatures, the water molecules are lighter than your average air molecules, oxygen and nitrogen molecules, certainly a lot lighter than CO2. And but at the same pressure, they will displace those some of those mo molecules, and because of that. For a race car, it's just simply the effect the humidity has in terms of aerodynamic forces. It's just the impact that humidity has on uh, pressure, <coughs> on, sorry, on air density. I'll do bigger pardon. But for an engine, the important thing is the oxygen content of the air. And so high humidity at high temperature has a fairly uh, dramatic effect on the power that an engine can put out. The other interesting thing, going back a slide, the other interesting thing for me is just looking, I'm just in, in the end, life is interesting. Engineering is interesting. When, when at university, I was in my final year at university and I was cutting up some live rats. They had to be live because if you used chemicals to kill, if you killed them, then the chemistry, the body chemistry would change. And if you used chem, chemicals to knock them out, the body chemistry would change. So there I was cutting up live rat livers thinking what in God's name am I doing here this is not what I want to do with my life I don't like killing things this way so I had to think of something else to do and for me I, I've been studying the human body because I'm very interested in what makes the human body muscles and you know how do you turn uh, chemical energy into kinetic energy it's very interesting but I had to find something else to do with my life because I didn't like cutting up things that were still alive and killing them that way so uh, started to investigate engineering, which is for, for a young, young man, it's, it's going to be girls and cars and motorbikes and things like that that are, that are the most interesting things in life. Well, it was for me in any case. And um, so then you look at your air density versus temperature and pressure. And if you look at engine correction formulae and you just do a quick analysis, see what, how does this relate to air pressure or air density? The engine correction formula for 
pressure is linear with density, but the engine correction formula for temperature is the square root. And therefore, there is something else going on when the temperature goes up and down. There's something else going on that makes high temperature more beneficial than the reduction in density caused by temperature. And I imagine it's the evaporation of fuel or something like that. And the engine correction formulae around the, the people use are lots of official formulae. The engine correction formulae uh, vary a little bit on the temperature factor, but not on the pressure factor. May I just find it interesting? Then, this is a reminder one for me. Electronics in a Formula One car, we have well over 100 sensors. It's a, it's a very delicate point because right now the rule makers and the teams are talking together about reducing costs, which we do quite often, and we should because we spend far too much money. Um, and one of the things in discussion is how many sensors are you allowed on a racing car? And they're talking about reducing the number to something like 120 sensors on a car, which is pretty frightening for a lot of the bigger teams. Um, so we have quite a bit of electronics in the car, but we don't have a big dash panel for the driver. The driver gets the steering wheel, and the bits that light up are the bits at the top here. He has his gear change lights and a few little lights here, and he has his radio that crackles in his ear from time to time. But that's... That's the driver's interface to the world, other than his um, eyes looking at the road. And there's plenty a driver gets to do, um, but he doesn't get that much information to, ha to have to look at all at once. Now, the kinetic energy recovery system was first introduced in 2009, then nobody ran it in 2010, reintroduced in 11. It's not compulsory. More teams use it now than they did in 2009. One of the reasons is the minimum weight of a Formula One car has been increased a little bit to allow that you can put a kinetic energy recovery system in and the disadvantages of that extra mass, if you like, don't compromise your chassis stiffness or anything like that. There are no real compromises now in fitting other than a very small increase in the centre of gravity height when you fit a kinetic energy recovery system. It has to operate off the rear wheels only. Um, that means you can't either recover energy or put energy back in through the front wheels, which is a pity. One day they'll allow us to work everywhere and it'll, it'll be more fun. There'll be more, more gains. And the gains are, depending upon how you use your system, about a quarter of a second, but also quite a, quite a few metres, 18, 20 metres sometimes of distance. So if you're behind another car, if they don't have curves or they've deployed it in a different way and you've saved yours up, then you may have an advantage. And on a speed versus distance plot, so this is a Barcelona circuit, which is one that a lot of teams use as their, if you like, average reference circuit, then um, you can have a, a double boost, so the, 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 the green one uses a boost there on the, on the back straight and a, and, a, and a boost on the front straight, so that the, the, um, the circuit sort of split up a little bit. And a single boost will give you a bit more top speed, and you quite often, if you watch on TV, quite often the teams will use the kinetic energy recovery system and, and then uh, hit the rev limiter because, because of the way the, the gearing is. And that's a, that's a conscious choice the teams make sometimes. If, if you reduce the gearing so that you don't hit the rev limiter when you hit the curves, you accelerate slightly less well when, you, when you're not using it. And so the teams have to make these choices. So now we're on to aerodynamics. And why is aerodynamics so key, well, the tyres are controlled. We get issued with identical sets of tyres, two compounds for the dry, there's two wet 
types of tyre are always available as well. Um, the tyres are selected by the rule makers from randomly from a from a big selection of identical, at least um, hopefully identical tyres. And the, there are, there are really no complaints from the teams about are the tyres identical. The tire, there is a tiny bit of variation in the tyres, but basically the teams are satisfied that, that it is done well. So the tyres, which is one of the most important things, we don't change. Uh, the cars are all on minimum weight. We ballast them up to minimum weight. The engine specification has been frozen for some time, although that's changing hopefully for 2014. And therefore, therefore you're left with aerodynamics and suspension kinematics and so on, mechanical grip, and um, aerodynamics is dominant. And my wife helps me with these slides, and there's a really nice slide from Melbourne. And, um, but in Melbourne, we had a first corner accident, and we've got a broken benzene on the front wing. The tip of the nose is completely gone. And um, we raced the whole race like that, and the cars actually did quite well. Uh, a bit embarrassing, really. But, <laughs> but you take all these things and you learn. Yeah? We had a new front wing after a little while. So I come back to a little plot here. I'm going to show you now the impact of aerodynamics. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to turn off the aerodynamic downforce. So there's a mathematical simulation going around Barcelona. The blue line is a normal, a normal lap of Barcelona. The green line is turn off the aerodynamic downforce. Now, it's not fair to turn off the aerodynamic downforce, but never mind, we'll, we'll do that anyway. We'll turn some drag off as well. And the difference that makes, you go from about 82 seconds a lap to about 103 seconds a lap. So you're 21 and a half seconds a lap slower when you turn off the aerodynamic downforce. But, and the other thing worth noting is, in the slower speed corner over here, where without downforce you're doing about 63 kilometers per hour, we make about 8% of speed aerodynamically in that low speed corner. And these low speed corners, you think, okay, it's not very much, it doesn't look very much, but this is a distance plot. You spend a lot of time in a low speed corner, so 8% is extremely significant in a low speed corner. In a medium speed corner, whoops, in back, in a medium speed corner, where you start without downforce at just about 100, it's about 24%. In a high speed corner, where when you've got full downforce, it almost doesn't look like a corner, it's about 70% of speed that you're making because you've got downforce. And let's look at, let's add drag. So now I've taken the drag down to one quarter, this is a dotted purplish line, taken the drag down to one quarter of normal drag and your speed profile you can see does improve quite a bit but you only recover a couple of seconds so the downforce really is dominant then to complete the loop you really have to have full downforce and almost no drag this is the aerodynamicist dream this is what every boss asks me to do can you just do just follow that red trace please can you just maximum downforce zero drag of course, it's rather difficult to achieve. But what, what you recover then from your base lap is 4.4 seconds. And one of the reasons you recover, if you start with downforce, why the drag becomes more important, is that 
you can then use that speed. You're going fast around the corners. The aerodynamic drag, that resistance would then normally be very, very important. Reducing the drag then does make a difference. So these factors are all quite interactive. And the impact that you have on speed due to the drag part is here, less than 0.1% in the slowest corner. Here, about 0.34%. And here, about 7%. So compared to downforce, it's still not making a huge difference. It's, it's important. But. Now, Lanchester, he was, a, he, was, he was an interesting curve. He made this thing and ran it on a, on a road car. And his aim was to try to balance the drag you get. Imagine that this, uh, this thing is, the way it's drawn, is facing the wind. The drag you get on a forward-facing bluff body compared to the drag you get on a horizontal flat plane. He was trying to compare the two by rushing them through the wind, bolted, bolted to a car. Uh, that's really it. I like people like this. Um, my parents grew up in Holland in, uh, in the hunger winter, in the, in the, in the uh, Second World War, and um, my dad died when I was six, and mum's on a widow's pension. I've lived my whole life with no money. Okay, then, then I work in Formula One now, but you don't change the mindset. You've got to be efficient with money. This, this was a clever way to try and understand. Now, he struggled big time, as we all do when you do these simple things. He found that the bouncing around of the car made it really difficult to be truly scientific and accurate with your results. But what a clever thing to do. I'd like, I've, I have clever young people in my department who, some of them are rather difficult to manage, let's say. And you can imagine I was a bit also difficult to manage when I was young. I'm difficult to manage now. So, never mind when I was young. Yeah. Uh, but I have a number of really clever people in my group who are difficult to manage, but the contribution they make is just enormous because they just keep hammering you with new ideas all the time. Why don't we do this? Why do we do it? everything? They question everything. But it's really good. If you're willing to be questioned, it's really, really useful sometimes. And I think a chap like this would have done rather well. As I said, I think he'd be my boss. And since we're on skin friction, um, I thought I'd just do a very, very crude, quick... Now, I haven't worried about uh, interference drag and wave drag and parasitic too much, but just lift-induced and vicious, viscous drag. Vicious. It is vicious. <laughs> it's vicious on a plane anyway, but it's not so vicious on, on a racing car. Viscous drag on a racing car isn't really... Skin friction drag isn't really that important on a racing car. We generate so much downforce, it's all about lift-induced. And that's why, for example, you, you, you always get the golf ball effects and the shark skin effects, and you always get the, the, the amateur aerodynamics writing in with ideas, and they're nearly always things that, that don't work as well on a race car as they would on, a, on, uh, on something else. So this is where it gets a little bit... Um, I'm giving too much information away. I'm starting to sweat a little bit. <laughs> this is actually a 2009 car, and it gives you a breakdown of where... The 2009 car that I was working on at that time, at Sauber, um, where the downforce is generated. So downforce and drag. So the front wing, the bodywork, the big green bit, the bodywork actually creates lift. But if you change your bodywork so it generates downforce, the car generates less because you need to condition the flow for the rear end of the car. And the biggest generator of downforce, more than 50%, is the floor of the car. But if you look at the drag contribution of the floor of the car, in this case, it's relatively low. Now, this is where it gets interesting. 
If you remove your rear wing assembly, which is actually quite easy to do on a wind tunnel model, it's even easier to do in a CFD simulation, it's actually quite easy to do as well on a race car, not that you'd want to race it that way. Um, sometimes we remove them accidentally, we certainly did in the past. Yeah. You see a wing fly off and a split second later a car flying off, because without a rear wing the car's out of balance, it's, the, the, the guy's going to have an accident. If you're ever driving a Formula One car, I don't know if any, any of you ever will, but if you're driving a Formula One car and you get to the end of the straight, and inexplicably, some, suddenly, the car accelerates forward, come out of the throttle straight away. <laughs> because there's got to be a bad reason it's doing that. And then looking at the drag, the biggest contributor, contributor to drag is the rear wing. But if you remove the rear wing, then the impact of removing the rear wing in terms of downforce is much bigger than the, than the downforce it generates because the rest of the aerodynamics of the car collapses. And the same is true of the impact on drag. And then looking at a breakdown of one of the elements, now this is an old green, so I'm really happy to show this because we wouldn't be able to run elements like this today, but the majority of the downforce is generated by the upper wing main plane and the majority of the drag comes elsewhere. The upper wing flat, for example, has more drag than the, than the main plane does. And this breakdown will be different, quite different for different teams. But it's reasonably easy to get this breakdown, particularly with computational fluid dynamics. Now, now I show you our this year's car. This is where I'm really getting worried because I know there are people from other teams. Um, so, Looking at a breakdown of the car itself, the total car, each car to its own total, then the breakdown looks quite similar. We've, we've increased the, the, the downforce a little bit of the, um, of the floor. We've reduced the downforce of the wing, but the front wing contribution to downforce is the same percentage. The thing that's probably changed the most is that the rear wheel suspension versus the uh, rear wing has sort of, uh, we've moved that around a little bit. And then if you look at the downforce as a percentage of the downforce we had in 2009, so you think of this as how much has it changed since 2009, then all the downforces have increased a little bit, except perhaps the rear wing, which is in the same area. It's slightly reduced, but all downforce, but the biggest increase has been in rear wheel suspension brake duct area, the, the, the rear corners if you like, and the floor. Then looking at drag, the drag of the front wing has gone up, the drag of the rear wing has gone down, the drag of the rear wheel and brake duct has gone up, the floor and diffuser has gone up, and the floor and diffuser now, despite the fact it's a flat floor then with a diffuser, it actually contributes quite quite a percentage of the drag of the car. But if you look at the aerodynamic efficiencies of these, 2009 and, and 2012, then the aerodynamic efficiency of the floor, so flat floor plus diffuser, the aerodynamic efficiency of the floor, it is the most efficient device we've got on a car. But if you look at the number, it's, it's um, 10 to 12 aerodynamic efficiency. You think of an aeroplane, you're going to be, where are you working with aeroplanes? I don't know, 50 to 1? I don't know. We're in another league. We, we do a different job. We generate high downforce devices. But it's correct to increase the power, if you like, of those devices that are the most efficient. 
And so a front wing is more efficient than a rear wing. It's correct if you increase the, the, uh, the drag penalty of a front wing rather than a rear wing. The floor is more efficient than the lot. It's correct that you really increase the power of the floor. So the models we play with, they're actually most interesting when you look at the inside of the models. But I'm not going to show you the inside of the models because I can't. And because yeah, there are people here from other teams and it's one of the areas where you make a difference. But we have quite big, we have nice toys. We have wind tunnels that operate 24 hours, those, those teams that can afford it. Um, we have many more sensors on a wind tunnel model than we do on a one-to-one -one race car. And we get to play as often as we like, or as much as we like. Then we used to operate with a lot of quasi-static positions. More and more of the teams, and I have to say thank you here to F1 Race Technology and Toyota Motorsport because I have to try and find things that are in the public domain that I can use to explain concepts that don't offend anybody. So I've had to ask permission, and the stuff that I do in my team I don't really want to talk about directly. But most teams are starting to investigate more and more continuous motion and acquisition. Uh, in the past, the teams have, have started, we started in wind tunnels with just a static position. And then we decided we needed heave and pitch. And now the teams can do heave, pitch, roll, yaw, steer. They can do all sorts of things. Uh, the tyres are rubber. You can change the pressure in the tyres. Some teams can. You can change the, uh, the load on the tyre. All sorts of things you can do. Um, and from there, the a few of the teams tried dynamic motion, genuinely dynamic motion. But the mechanical forces involved make it rather hard to measure what's happening with the aerodynamics, and therefore we moved to just relatively slow, continuous motion. And it's a really big time saver. So the time spent wind on moves from 34% of your total time to 19% in this particular example. And that's something that if you save time in the wind tunnel, if you're more efficient, then the next thing to tackle is the next big slice, which is pit stop time. Now... It's also worth mentioning some of the limitations and strengths of the tools that we use. A wind tunnel is really great for understanding your sensitivities, but it's actually, it has a lot of limitations. And one is true cornering. You cannot do true cornering in a wind tunnel. You can put your model at your, but a race car going around a corner, the front tyres might be turned in at maybe 20 degrees at a, at a hairpin bend, and the front of the car in the middle of the tyres is probably turning in at 16, 17 degrees, and the rear is coming out at 3 or 4 degrees. Well, you can't do that in a wind tunnel. You can fix the attitude of your car, you can wobble your wheels around all you like, but the attitude of the wind to the car is a fixed angle. And that is a limitation of wind tunnel testing. Now, one of the, one of the things that's been really great at helping Formula One teams improve has been understanding, uh, better and better understanding of airflow. It's traditionally been an advantage of the CFD groups, the computational groups, to give themselves air, airflow planar information or any, any information you want from the airflow, anywhere in the airflow. With things like a particle imaging velocimetry system or a laser Doppler system, you can begin to gather that sort of information. And a number of teams have invested a lot in being able to gather this information quickly and efficiently so that they can 
give experimental error analysis the same advantage as the computational guys have had for a long time. And then there's often talk that there's a problem with the wind tunnel. We've, we've put something in the wind tunnel that's better and we put it on the race car and it doesn't work. There's a problem with the wind tunnel. In, in my opinion, there's a communication problem. A wind tunnel is not perfection. It's not reality. It's a simulation like any other form of simulation. And if you expect that you get a uh, 1.2% improvement in aerodynamic efficiency in the wind tunnel and it's going to be 1.2% on the race car then you're not thinking straight it's a guide it's, a, it's like it's like asking a solicitor for advice a solicitor will give you good advice but only a judge in the end makes the judgment so the wind tunnel is a solicitor and the, the, the track is the judge and then race engineers will believe the data from the race car, but they don't measure the load on the tyres directly because the, 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 the push rods are pull rods and the, the, the forces don't go through those. They don't measure the outboard half of the suspension load, so they don't get the complete picture. But it's the tool they know, love and trust. Then the wind tunnel data is more complete, but it has limitations of its own. You might have a strut in the way that interferes with certain things. You have blockage effect, you have Reynolds number effect or scale effects as the, the, the model is too small, it's running too slow, you don't get your true cornering, the tyre shapes on the model are bound to be wrong, it's not possible to get them right. Um, you get supplied by the same tyre supplier, so Pirelli supply model tyres, the same as they do for the race car. On the race car they need to do 200 kilometres, on the model they might have to do 50 or 100,000 kilometres. Then um, we don't run hot exhausts and hot radiators and so on. So um, if you expect perfect correlation, then you're definitely not thinking straight. However, believe it or not, that's me in the brown overalls there. Um, in 1982, working on a sports car, we had two days to design a sports car, two days of wind tunnel testing to design a sports car body. On the first day I did 14 runs, I was the angriest man on the planet, I can be a very angry man, when I was young in particular I could be very, very angry. I was angry not with anybody else, I was angry with me. We weren't allowed to measure forces and pressures at the same time, which I thought was absolutely ridiculous, even though it was the first wind tunnel test I'd done in my whole life. Um, the second day we went back and we measured both. Um, and we only did 14 configurations in an 8-hour shift. I went back two weeks later and did 48 configurations in an eight-hour shift and the wind tunnel operator, who was just paid to come and press the buttons and, and, and make sure we looked after the facility, was the angry man because he'd never had to work so hard on And I haven't changed my attitude at all. Now, you get a certain amount of interaction between departments. This is a, uh, a contour plot of drag and downforce showing... Uh, the lines are lines of isolap time averaged over a number of circuits. And the dotted line is an imaginary car uh, operating in its normal range of adjustability. And the solid line is what happens if you open, we have a kinetic, we have a, uh, a drag reduction system you're allowed on the car, there's an imaginary drag reduction system. But let's just take the dotted line. If I want to improve my lap time, I've got to head up at 90 degrees to that, or the best way is to head up at 90 degrees. But if I go sideways and increase the downforce but increase the drag and just go along the line, I'm just adjusting the car. I'm just doing the same as adjusting the car. I'm not doing any good. So knowing where you are and knowing how that improves or, or, or doesn't your lap time is really, really important. And that comes back to our tyre coefficient. 
Because if you supplied new tyres, this year we have new tyres. If you supplied new tyres and the friction coefficient of the tyre changes in a different way to what it used to change and your aerodynamics group don't talk to your vehicle and your, your race engineers or your vehicle performance people, then you don't know where you should be running your car in the winter. That's communication. So now, now we get computational. I always start my computational talks with this, but I never stay there. We generate so much downforce that it would be easy at 130 kilometres an hour to be upside down and stay there, even though the cars now weigh 640-odd kilos with driver and a, and a splash of fuel. Um, you'd probably need to be going closer to 150 kilometres an hour and then you'd have enough traction to actually stay there, which would be rather important. So I did, I did a a little bit of work for British American Tobacco. So when I was working for, I worked for, for a while for BAR, BAR Honda, became Braun. And they, they wanted to do a, a Formula One record at Bonneville. They have the Formula One straight line speed record, but it's only 396 and a bit. And they did over 400 kilometers in one direction, but they couldn't repeat it going back in the other direction. And their main problem was grip. The, the, uh, the, the drag really wasn't an issue, just grip. So this car didn't have a rear wing, but had to be Formula One legal. So we went to we went to an airfield, did 437 in a gale, and they thought, this is going to be easy. Of course, it isn't easy, because Bonneville, there isn't much grip. We had to run wet weather tyres, not half wet, full wet tyres, because the wheel spin was incredible. The, uh, the slip angle required, so the speed at 400 was about 430 on the rear wheel, so the, the, the car was a little bit, uh, let's call it loose. Um, and then the next stunt they wanted to do was this one. But when they spoke to the engine supplier, the conversation was fairly short. Just imagine the engine seizing when you're upside down. And then the run-up they would need, they did quite a run-up. I, I was the only person who put their hand up to volunteer to drive it. The real <laughs> But then I am crazy. Now, aerodynamics around a Formula One car is extremely complex. And I think the best way to see it is computationally. The computational tools we have today are phenomenal. And I, I think just looking at some of the airflow lines makes it really quick and easy to see that the aerodynamics is complex. And so we, use, we have various tools to try. So the wind tunnel people have always had the advantage of being able to do lots of little mini race simulations and CFD have always had the advantage of lots of detailed information, but the two keep trying to beat one another. And these are the sort of ways. And I've had to use a few slides here from uh, outside Formula One. So this one is courtesy of some friends at Total Sim. Um, it's a Formula Three car, but some friends at Total Sim uh, to show the sort of tools that a Formula One team might use without giving the game away too much. And teams also use mathematical optimization. Um, the picture, actually, the picture of the race car is this year's race car, but the actual slides, are, the rest of the slides are very, very old. And CFD is being used and trusted more and more. The, the movies here don't play, but uh, I'm not too concerned. But the, the, the computational fluid dynamics is being used exclusively in certain areas. So most of the cooling work of the car, um, I do mathematically. The, the, the tools work, you, you use the tools for what they're good at. 
designing the fuel cell and the baffling system in the fuel cell, brake cooling, uh, interactions between things. You really do. We do most of the work. Uh, and then more and more, we find that we're having to, again, I've had to use a, a simulation from outside Formula One, so I don't give too much of the game away. Um, we find we have to work with simulations that are more realistic than, for example, a, uh, a steady-state simulation without thinking too much about the steady-state simulation. I love this. This is thanks to Volvo, Swift and TotalSim. I used to have some really gorgeous movies of Formula One cars, but unfortunately the resources we're allowed to use in Formula One have been reduced a little bit. The resources that I have, my human resources that I have available have been reduced a little bit, and therefore I don't do movies just for fun. Um, then if you take a steady state simulation, which is the, this one on the, on the upper right, um, and a transient simulation, they do look quite different. But the areas that pulse, if you like, between peaks of your residuals on a steady state simulation and the areas that move in a full transient simulation are quite similar. I think that's enough said. Then both tools that we use, wind tunnel and CFD, we're also allowed to do straight line aero tests and we do use straight line aero testing. Four days per year we're allowed. But the tools that we use are all getting better. But for me, the, the fundamentals are the, the wind tunnel is good at, at, at helping you to understand sensitivities and CFD is really good at understanding the details of what's happening. And so the, in particular, CFD helps you to understand the airflow, the pattern of airflow around the car. And it has changed in the last two years. For me, it has changed the way I think about designing a racing car. I'm going to move on a little bit. Now, I'm a believer in keeping your simulation as simple as you can. The, the, the simpler it is, the more simulations you can do. I, I, I went from Ferrari to um, and that all over Formula One and I looked up with them and they were winning. Your steer, but what is it? Use a simple simulation. You work to understand it. It's just a simple question. And we have lots of rules we have to work If you look at the plan view, in particular the plan view of the cars, but if you look at very what the rules are, you will see the rules in the design of the rules. But we also have other limitations that we don't have on. So many hours of simulation counted in Think about how you get your to do and one way is just as a as a group. So the, the aerodynamic group can make a difference by just working effectively, just having a really effective or not so effective group of people. The bosses, the bosses can make a difference by giving you more or less resource. But if you work, say if you if you work on your continuous motion and acquisition and you're able to do more runs in an hour than another team, then the aero group can also make a difference to how much resource you've got available. And 
a lot of a lot of people talk about in the end it's all about teamwork. Yep, it is all about teamwork. But from my experience, it's also about massive contributions made by individual human beings. Someone who's willing to work harder. Someone who just is just has this raw natural ability. I've I've taken on a couple of people in in my past who have been fired from companies because they've shouted at their bosses. Now, I'm actually one of those people who gets fired because he gets shouts as, as his bosses. But I specialise, or I, I, I love to find people who have a big contribution to make, but they're just unusual human beings. So I've taken on, in, in my time, a couple of people who've been let go by a company because they didn't conform, if you like, to the way the bosses like to work. I've said, oh, if you let me take this person on, I'll hide them in my group and they, can, they'll, they'll, they won't bother you too much and they'll stay quiet and I work out a way to get these people to make their contributions. Some of these people will be worth 10 normal human beings because they're either super, super intelligent or focused on a particular job and they're always hard work. They always, they're people that, are, that give me headaches all the time but, in, but for me, they're worth it. And they then, when they realise that the team value them, that I value them, the team value them, the, the people they work with value them, uh, they tend to quiet down, calm down as well. And I'm going to stop there and open up for questions. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.